it's good to be reminded that in relationship, um, in Christian relationship, that one of our primary roles is to, as, as pretentious as it may sound, to reveal the character of God to those that we're in relationship with. You know, they referenced Deuteronomy at least once or twice in that uh, present, in that ceremony there. There's a line in there that says, teach your children uh, in the way they should go. And we tend to think <laughs> of the word should. We're raising our kids, you know, teach your children the way they should go. But there's emphasis that sits elsewhere in that phrase. You could think of it this way, teach your children in the way they should go, which makes it very personal and very unique to every child. What is the way that God would have them go? Or you could emphasize the way, like Adam did. Teach them the way of God that they should go. Uh, it feels like quite a load to take on. But it is part of our role in this world with one another and to the world to afford people as best we can in our lives a picture of God, uh, the character of God. You know, it, it, you, could, you could safely say that at least one of the primary uh, purposes of the scriptures that we have, the Bible that we have, is to demonstrate, to show, to illustrate, to narrate uh, who God is, uh, the character of God, the, the nature of man, and what it looks like to be in relationship. From, from beginning to end, we get a picture of God and his creation and what it looks like to be rightly in relationship with him and to wrongly be in relationship. We get a picture of who God is and who we are in the space of God and what our relationship uh, looks like. All, all relationships work like that, actually. There is a gradual understanding in any relationship of the other person. Are you with me? In relationship, you're learning about that other person. And from there... We develop, form and develop a unique relationship. Uh, I didn't know very much about who I was and where I was going when Tammy and I got married, which is, makes it monumentally difficult to build a relationship with me, right? Too much guesswork, too much up and down, too much indecision or uncertainty, right? The, if you cannot be known, then it's very difficult to have a relationship with, with you. And God, through the scriptures, through his son, even through the body of Christ, the church itself is continuing to make himself known. It's phenomenal uh, reality. It would be very different for you in relationship with your mother if she was a police officer versus a kindergarten teacher, right? Knowing that person defines the relationship to some degree, makes it unique. Your relationship with your mother is going to be different if you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, right? You're, the relationship 
has so much to do with who I am and who they are. You could get to know somebody better if they were to list for you characteristics of themselves, right? That's what you do on a dating app. That's what you do in a bio. That's what you do. Uh, You tell people about you. The other thing you could do in relationship is write a list of expectations you have for the other person. And through that, you could also define who you are. Think about it. You're on the job, first day on the job, and you meet with the boss, and they give you a list of expectations. I want you here on time. I want you 15 minutes early. I don't want you talking to other people about anything other than work. I want you to know that your job security here has to do with you meeting your goals as I determine them. And then you go home, and you can talk to your friend or your spouse about who that boss is based on his expectations of you, right? Are you with me? If that boss boss says, hey, uh, we're glad you're here. What we know that we're going to be a different and better company because of your presence. I want this to be like a family. I want you to get to know one another. And I want you to know that although we have performance measures, our primary objective is to see you get better. Now you can go home and tell your wife or your friend about that boss and you would describe them as an entirely different person based on their expectations of you. This is precisely what we discover when we engage the Ten Commandments like we are. I'm going to spend the next nine or ten weeks working through that. Started last week, intro, I want to finish up some constructs, some context here before we get to the first commandment. This is precisely what we discover with the Ten Commandments. They are not only an outline of expectations, which they are, clearly. They are more so, maybe even more importantly, a revelation of who God is. And the more we get to know who God is, the more we can build that relationship. The more we can build that relationship, the more we can understand the expectations the more we can live according to the way of God because we know God. The Ten Commandments, in the the order of things, as they they arrive in the uh, latter part, middle part of Exodus, is the, the newest, really latest covenant of God with his people and the latest revelation of who he is. We talked about how critical Moses is to this revelation. Uh, I don't want to go back through all that detail, but what we have is a servant who is available and humble, um, uh, broken in many ways, frail, frail in many ways, but he was available and ready. And he had a unique perspective on all of the revelation that had occurred prior to. His heritage had handed down the stories and the narratives and the, and the realities and the ups and the downs of life with God and we are getting a clearer and clearer picture, and they are getting a clearer and clearer picture of who God is. It starts clear back in the garden. We start to get a picture, don't we? Very, in the very first setting, God is in charge. He calls on his people to trust him, to obey him. There are consequences to those things, right? You can see very clearly, and all through Scripture, each account shows uh, uh, picture of of who God is. The Ten Commandments are. 
of course, directives for the way of God. But out of arguably one of the most intimate meetings of God, with God, at least to date, with Moses on a mountaintop, shrouded in a cloud, God formulates with Moses something much deeper and richer than a set of commands. A very concise revelation about who he is. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy, which is the fifth of the five books that we often give credit to Moses for writing. He said, these are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live. And that word fear is critical to understand. It doesn't necessarily mean scared of. It means to revere, to, to understand the the. the, the, the uh, um, the monumental nature of him, which requires what? Knowledge of him. It wouldn't be a stretch to say these commands that I give you today, uh, your children, their children after them, may know the Lord your God and revere him as long as you live. Even Moses understands these directives, these commands have a much deeper uh, purpose, and that is to know God. He goes on and he says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, you recognize the Shema there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. You can just feel there's something more to these commands than just cold, hard law directives. They, they bring us to a place of loving God with all of our being. They are to be on our hearts, in our hearts. We are to impress them on our children. What are we impressing upon our children? A knowledge of God, an understanding of who he is, how majestic, how beautiful. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at the home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you go up. Moses isn't saying strictly do these commands, right? It's more than that. Talk about them. When you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you get up, he is saying, allow these commands to have you be with God. Remember, this is Deuteronomy 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. You remember that? They, they, they were freed from Egypt. Moses led them out. And there was, a, you know, a, a, a very relatively short journey from point A to point B that ended up taking 40 years. And it's often misunderstood that they were lost. They were not lost. They were being clearly directed by God, but there was something much deeper happening during those 40 years. What is it? Moses got the commands within the first three months, and they spent 40 more years, and they expanded those commands out pretty dramatically but the purpose was for them to learn who he is, to hear his voice, to become his people, to build that relationship, to understand who he is, understand who we are, and uniquely build a relationship over time. 
He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. All the, all the natural things of life are being utilized by God for us to know him. And then you look at Jesus and his life all day long is a picture of God and an invitation to know God in a way that we've never been able to know him before. He put God clearly on display so that we could know him more. I want to show you what I mean with the Ten Commandments. Again, we're kind of still building a lot of context here. I want to give you an idea of, of how this happens or what I mean. How they reveal the heart of God. Look at the first one, and we're going to get more into this in the, at the end here. But you shall have no other gods before me. Now, one thing you need to remember, coming into the commandments, there is already a revelation, a, a perspective, an understanding that God is the Almighty. That's, that's already in place. This is here. You shall have no other gods before me. I want to submit to you that this is a very relational command. Like I said, we'll talk about this a little bit more. More so than a hierarchical thing. It is an invitation. The second one, you shall make for yourself no idols. What God is suggesting here is that we don't turn him into a religion. Who is God? Who do we see? What do we see in God in this is that he's real. He's real. Number three, you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Who is God? What is he saying? He's saying, I, I am sacred. I am to be honored and revered. I am worthy of your praise. You see how God is communicating who he is through the commands. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You know, the Sabbath day is eventually time away from the things in life that bring us significance, particularly work. The Sabbath was, was meant to uh, put us in a position where we aren't relying on ourselves, but we were remembering who God is. Remembering that, that he is not performance-based in his love for us. How important is that to remember, that that is who God is? That he is grace-rich. This command to keep the Sabbath reminds us of who he is. A grace-rich, benevolent father. Honor your father and mother. Submit yourself to their authority, which is not hard unless you have bad parents, which is not as infrequent as we would like. To honor your mother and father in the context of God is to trust God as one who will take care of you. He says, look, I, I, you can trust me to uh, honor those in which you have been set within the authority structure of this world because I'm over all of it. You don't have to worry. I've got you. I, we've often said as a, as, as a leadership team um, uh, that as a, as a congregation, it, it doesn't strike me as the right tone to say, you trust your leadership, Right? 
the leadership has been gathered together and is called to direct the church in particular directions uh, that, that God directs and to make sure that we are living gospel-oriented lives. And we do ask for the congregation to yield to the leadership of whatever church you're in, but to always trust God that he can do what he wants to do within the frailties of that structure. We aren't perfect. We always trust God above and beyond the authorities that he asks us to be subject to. It shows us that we have a trustworthy father. What does it say about God when he says, do not murder? We understand the heart of God is that he is a defender of life. That life is, is so high on the prayer. He created, he's like, don't. Take another life. We see the heart of God and his valuing of life. Don't commit adultery. It says, understand how meaningful and powerful it is in this life to be sacrificially loyal. To your own detriment, be loyal to the commitments that you've made to your spouse. And he says, that's who I am, sacrificially loyal. You see the heart of God in the command. Don't steal. Why would God say, look, you don't need to go steal from somebody else? Why? I am a provider, right? You can see the character of God. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Why would you lie about your neighbor? Why would you make up a story about your neighbor? Normally, it comes out of fear. You're afraid of them getting one up on you. You don't have to worry about that. I am your protector. You can turn the other cheek. I've got you. You shall not covet. This is a tough, this is like, this one's very different than the other nine commands. There's something deep about coveting within. It's like, why why do we have these kind of out-of-control appetites and desires for something else. He goes, you don't need to go searching elsewhere for the things that are deeply seated in you as needs. I will comfort you. I can meet you there. You see what I'm saying? The commands can be seen as just rules, or we can view them as a descriptor of who God is. And the more we get to know God, the more we can be in relationship and develop that relationship and be his people. Jesus eventually addresses the Ten Commandments and others. And he shows an even deeper revelation of the commandments. What Jesus tells us is not only... Do the commandments reveal who God is? They reveal who you are. Just as the 10 reflect the character of God, Jesus shows us how they have also always intended to be a mirror that reflects the condition of our character. Someone a long time ago said that you can't, you don't break the commandments. We talk about, did you break any commandments? You can't really break the commandments. They break you if you're, if you're humble. 
They serve as a mirror that, that breaks our heart. It shows us how we are not like the character of God. And Jesus affirmed that they have very little power to actually change your heart. There's something deep going on here that needs to be addressed. And just by doing everything that you're supposed to do and not doing everything you're not supposed to do, it doesn't always follow that you're actually changing. But if you let it, they will show you where the change and the transformation is needed. So what Jesus does when he teaches, he tends to teach in, you might call triplicate. He affirms the Old Testament. He says, here's what it's, what's been said. And then he adds and he says, but I say to you this. And then he says, and then in order to be transformed, do this. This is very clear in a couple in particular. It's, almost, it's there in almost every case. It's not always contained within the scripture, yet sometimes search. But in the Sermon on the Mount, there are some very clear indications of this triplicate kind of teaching. And the, and the, the, the commandment to not murder is a perfect one. Listen to this. You have heard, Jesus says, that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to, subject to judgment. Jesus pushes this commandment from an action into an attitude in the heart. Right? He says, yeah, uh, says don't murder. And he shouldn't. He doesn't do away with that. You absolutely don't murder. But I say to you, you're going to suffer judgment if you're angry in your heart. Now, if we stop right there, if we forget what Jesus is up to and what he has given us the opportunity to do, we handle that as another kind of mosaic commandment. Meaning, how does this work out in your life? Don't murder. We know how to not do that. Don't be angry in your heart gets translated in our brains to don't show any anger. This is where Christians get a bad rap. We're trying to obey the deeper commandment by not expressing our anger, holding it in. And, and you can see that in multiple different spaces. The Old Testament says this. Jesus says, don't be angry in your heart. And we think that means don't show any anger. <laughs> is that what Jesus is saying? Does Jesus say, don't show any anger? He says, don't be angry in your heart. How do you do that? How do you not be angry in your heart if you're angry in your heart? <laughs> and that's where Jesus comes with the third teaching. We call them transformative initiatives. He goes, I want to help you break the cycles of sin in your heart. I don't, I'm not, Jesus isn't calling us to a, a higher level of external obedience. To be a Christian isn't to not murder and to not show any anger. To be a Christian is to not murder and to have anger have a decreasing and diminishing effect on our heart. And Jesus says, here's how I want you to do it. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift in front of the altar. Go be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. God says, listen, you cannot be okay with me if you're not okay with them. If there's something going on in your heart, I don't want you coming here pretending like everything's fine. I need you to go deal with it. 
And y'all know this is true. Y'all have hung on to a lack of forgiveness or a lack of reconciliation in your lives in different ways, and you know the detrimental effect that that has on your life. And until you have the courage and the faith and the obedience to follow Jesus' command and go, do you know what it means to release someone or to be released and what that means for your heart? And Jesus knows this. He gives us ways to work on our hearts. I want you, as we go through the next whatever many weeks on the Ten Commandments, to make sure you're thinking about them in this context. They exhibit the character of God. They show who God is. They reflect into our own heart and show us where the deficiencies are in our heart. And then there is something about the command that can be exercised in a way that actually does something about the healing and the restoration of our heart. Are you with me? That's the whole context. So let me spend five minutes on the first commandment. <laughs> How much time? What is, my, is that 10 minutes left or am I over by 10 minutes? Left? Nice. <clears throat> Remember I said this particular command speaks to the relational character of God you shall have no other gods before me. Let me tell you why we're saying that. We, we were talking about it this week. In fact, uh, Eric uh, Biddle uh, was the one that noticed this first, and it was like, yes, that is, that is it. That's perfect. So listen, you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 3. <clears throat> the way that sentence is set up, there is a, there is a negative. It starts actually by saying no which means everything else to follow, no to this, and it directs it to you. Negative, flip this, you. Let it come to pass. Don't you let it come to pass any other God or you might say governing authority or force. Don't you let it come to pass anything in your, other than in your life, other than your life, a, a governing force, a, an influencing power. It's, it's Elohim, which is divine, divine being, God, greatness, mighty. Don't, don't let anything else of that nature, God, of influential pressure, control in your life, right? This a God. Before me. Not, not before as in like priority, like one comes before two and A comes before B. When he says before here, don't let any other governing force before, like more like, um, uh, okay, I'm, I went, I'm going back, back to a 20-year reunion and I'm looking for a friend I haven't seen for 20 years. I don't know if he's there. I can't find him. I'm looking around. And then suddenly I realize he's before me. He's right before me. It's that, before, before me. And then the me is where it gets very relational. The me here, more deeply and maybe more specifically translated is like, so you got before, in, it's like in front of, right? Before, in front of my face. 
Don't ever let it come to pass, you, that something other, some other governing force is in front of me in my face, in front of my face. You see how relational that is, how personal that is? In my face. I, I, I remember the first time someone said that to me. Uh, this, is what, this is the first time I remember. It was in high school. I'm walking up the ramp to the second floor of the, all the classroom space in my high school, and I'm walking. I didn't realize this, but I was walking behind a guy that fell into a, a sort of a group or a tribe that was known to be pretty, let's just say, aggressive. <laughs> they were all kind of bigger, tougher, different than most people. It just didn't really mess with them. We had a name for them, which I'm not going to repeat, but like I, I knew I was getting in, in too close. They had leather wallets with chains and like they were all, it's just like, I, you probably know who I'm talking about if you grew up when I did. They also wore work boots. And I was walking behind and accidentally stepped on the back of his boot. Yeah. <clears throat> I've always been rather small of stature, lean, I like to say. And by that time, I think we've got jammed up at the door at the top of the ramp. And so just before he started to go right, and I went, I step on his foot, his shoe, and he turns around. I remember what he said. It was something like, oh, get off my back, your face, whatever it is. And I said something like, <laughs> it's, I've been the same most of my life. I said something like, yeah, but I like your boots, something like that. <clears throat> <clears throat> As I'm, you know, going to my locker. And I get to my locker, and he's right here. In my face, right? <laughs> and he says, what did you say? And I was like, uh, I, don't, I don't even remember. It just kind of didn't go well, whatever happened right then. And um, he said, I don't want you ever in my face again. <laughs> I just I don't learn very quickly. I always said, hey, man, you came over here. And he goes, I think I'm going to stick you in that locker. And he literally started to push me into my own locker, which my friend just happened to show up at that same moment, said something like, it's both of us or none of us, bro. And then he just let it go. It's nice to have friends like that. <clears throat> he said, I don't want you in my face. It's like, and I remember him being right here. It was, my whole point is, it was very personal. Like, I didn't really know this person. I only knew of him. And now... I know the smell of his breath. I know the, the contours of his face. I was in his face. He was in my face. If you've ever tried to assure somebody of their value, of their purpose, of, of their innocence, and they're not listening to you, what do you do? You get in their face. Listen to me. Listen to me. I need to tell you the truth about you. It's, it's very intimate. The unfortunate circumstance of being in a life or death situation in an emergency room with a mom and her, one of her daughters. <clears throat> and they were losing her. And she was cut off. They were just circling and just working on her. And she looked at me and said, is she going to make it? And I said, I don't know, but you need to tell her to hang on. And you need to tell her you love her. I knew what was coming. And I pushed her through. I separated, literally pushed her through until she was over top and leaning down in her face. 
telling her to hang on and telling her that she loved her. It was deeply, critically important for her to be in her face. And God is saying, don't ever let anything get between my face and your face. What did Adam and Eve do when they, after they sinned? They hid from the face of God. The New Testament says God's glory is revealed in the face of Jesus. Paul, Paul quotes, let light shine out of the darkness. God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We have the capacity in Christ to be face to face, as it were, with God. And God says, don't let anything come between your face and my face. And Jesus lived this out in spades. There, there is almost no narrative, no recounting of scripture and Jesus with people where you can't picture him in the face of somebody. The woman caught in adultery, he picks her up out. You know she was looking at him coming up and he's speaking words of life to her in her face. He wept with Mary and Martha about the death of their brother Lazarus. He was in their face weeping with them. He spoke to a Samaritan woman who weren't even supposed to be anywhere near and is in her face telling her that even her someday will worship irrespective of who she is or what she's done. Jesus met face to face with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, part of the group that was against Jesus, even in that case, face to face. I don't want to overcomplicate this. I just want you to hear that. I want you to see the character of God in the first commandment. He's saying more than make me number one. He's saying, you and me, Face to face. First order of business, you knowing me, seeing me, smelling my breath, seeing the contours of my face, and I, you, building a relationship together. This is number one. Don't let anybody else into that space. One of the, I'll finish with this. One of the most profound revelations of God in Scripture for us is the unbreakable thread of mercy Look at, you think about this narrative of the nature and the character of God and the nature and character of man. And man is just like the cyclical, love you, God. No, I don't love you, God. I'm faithful to you. I'm following you as I'm not following you. It's like you just over and over and over again. And God is relentlessly, persistently merciful to his people. Second chance, third chance, fourth chance, fifth chance. I've told you this story before. We were sitting with a couple of the elders in Africa. Adam and I were sitting with them, and they were trying to reach out to these particular groups of uh, families that just seemed to be un completely unresponsive to their reach. And they didn't know when they should stop or how many times they should do it. And they asked us, how many more times should we try? And Adam, knowing the character of God, said, one more? 
and then one more, right? <laughs> Just again and again. That's the character of God. He is merciful again and again. And we see that all through Scripture. We have a God who is merciful in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our frailties, in our failures to obey the commands. He is there. Within the perpetual call for our trust, it's always calling for us to trust him. And in our unfailing, you know, demonstrations of mistrust, the mercy of God is unrelenting and it's personified as he literally gets in humanity's face through the incarnation. Jesus, he, he's, he sends himself and gets in our face your best life is face-to-face -face with God. And that possibility is made through Christ. We have no business being face-to-face -face with God, an unholy nature and a holy God. But Jesus does the work that creates the space that we can boldly walk into the place of face-to-face -face with God. His compassion, his forgiveness, his assurance of eternity allows us to be in the presence of God face to face. I'm going to say this again. Your best life is to have that level of intimacy with your creator God and Jesus makes that space possible. He is the only human and will only be the only ever human ever to fully trust God his entire life. God's been, in a sense, waiting for this person to come along since Adam. Not Heath, but... mentioned him earlier. I just thought I should draw a distinction. <laughs> God's been waiting. Jesus, by the nature of being the only one to ever fully trust God, is by nature the only one who can repair the broken trust that we have brought to bear with God in our life. It is, in a sense, within his trust within his sacrifice, within his forgiveness, within his resurrection, that we find ourselves in that remarkable place with God. It is because of him and you could say and should say in him. Jesus creates the opportunity to be face-to-face -face with God and in him our future assurance affords us a confidence that we will be face-to-face -face forever with God in increasing measures of knowing him. Let me encourage you to obey the first commandment. Don't you let anything lure you with its empty promises of control and significance and take your face away from his. 
God. Thank you for the kids in this church. God, I love them so much. They're full of energy. Um, they, uh, are, are, they don't even know it, but they've been created in a way uh, that they are designed to know you better. And it often starts with parents and with us that they might begin to see you in us. Help us to be in our children's face. Help us to be in one another's face in all the right and good ways. And God, let us never remind us, show us, impede our ability to turn away from you. It is so good to know you want to be in our face and you want nothing to stand in your way. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. amen.